to have and to hold. These are key words that are part of the covenant that we create between holy God and the person we're marrying. I promise to have and to hold. We're doing this series of messages for five weeks in which we're inviting five commitments that I believe fundamentally will lay the groundwork for just a healthy relationship. And so in the first week together, we talked about, and, and this is a truth that just seeded all through Scripture, that, that God must be one, and then our spouse too. That the best platform to create this healthy relationship that God wants for every one of us is that he needs to be first, and that if he's first, we'll actually love our spouse better than if we try to make them first. Because he'll empower us to love them the way they deserve to be loved, to give ourselves up for them. That our children or whatever come after that. And that we'll actually love our kids better if we get it right. God first, our spouse second, and then our kids. We talked in that week as well about the necessity and the, the wisdom behind praying together as a couple. That couples that pray together seldom, in fact, very rarely, end up in divorce. Very rare. In week number two, we talked about the idea of sparring, that, that we will have disagreements as a couple. We'll even fight. This is human nature because of who we are. Uh, we have opinions about things. And we said the key idea here, biblically, is that we're not trying to fight to win, but fight to bring a good resolution. And so we have this image of of boxing, that in boxing, and you see the picture of Muhammad Ali from the 60s there, this is a picture of boxing. I triumph over you, I win, I conquer you, I even taunt you in a sense. And that's deeply hurtful to people. It's meant to inflict pain and hardship. Sparring, on the other hand, is when I'm not trying to hurt you, the goal here is that we would both get better. And so you see in this picture of sparring, um, sort of a camaraderie, a healthy dynamic between the two. And so when we disagree, we want to be about sparring rather than boxing. In week number three, the title was Enjoy, that an integral part of a good marriage is that we would have fun together, that we would have a healthy and a vibrant sex life together as a married couple. That nobody goes and says, I'm going to date this person that deeply, deeply bores me. That I don't have anything in common with. That I don't enjoy spending time with. No, we, fall, we date someone and we fall in love with someone that we enjoy. That we have fun with. And sometimes we lose this in the marriage. And so we want to be, and God never looks at marriage and, says, and intends for it to be dull or boring or stagnant. He wants it to be vibrant and alive. He wants us to have fun, enjoy each other, and to have a healthy, vibrant sex life. Next week, we're going to talk about the idea of of true grit, of never giving up. But before we look at today's message, let me pray with you for a moment together. Let's pray. In a very real sense, kind Father, we are standing on holy ground, as we were just singing about. Because you're here by your spirit. 
And we realize from Scripture that for each of us here that's a biblical follower of Jesus whose lives have been changed by your atoning work and by your grace that literally we're in the throne room with you because you see us as holy because we're being viewed by you through Christ. Not through anything we've done as we sang earlier. It's not about who I am or anything that I might have done. It's all about Christ who's accomplished the work. And so we're on holy ground because you're here and in Christ we're seen as as holy positionally. So thank you so much for that. It's changed our life for eternity. Thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we consider it now that you would speak to us clearly and in a way that's um, just very personal. And so we invite the Spirit of God to, to search us and to mold us and to shape us. And may we be responsive to that as you would have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our church has sent, I believe it's three teams to Costa Rica. And I was privileged to go with the first team, the first serving team down to Costa Rica. And when you're down in Costa Rica, if you've ever been there for any reason, one of the things you'll often see on billboards and in advertisements is this word, these words, Pura Vita, Pura Vita. And it literally means the pure life. And the screen, the shot you see on the screen there, out in the countryside, that's very typical, that kind of lush foliage, and it's just a beautiful place, Pura Vita. And it means literally the pure life. And when they're using it in that context, they're saying, hey, when you come to Costa Rica, you can have plenty of life here. You can have, uh, it, it can be full of life for you here. That this is truly living here in Costa Rica, the Pura Vita. What does the pure life mean in the context of a believer? In the context of these five commitments that we're talking about for a healthy, vibrant relationship? What does the pure life mean? So when we think about this idea of pure, probably the things that begin to come to mind are things like untarnished. No contamination whatsoever. Uncomplicated. You you think of words like clean and clear and fresh and wholesome and natural and healthy, and it's extremely inviting. And we want to talk about that idea this morning. So today, um, you know, whether you're married or or single, let me just ask some rhetorical questions. You don't need to put your hand up, okay? Some rhetorical questions. I just wonder if there's anyone here that has a life goal to commit adultery one day. I'm guessing nobody would put their hand up for that. I'm also guessing that there's probably no one here that one of their big plans in life is to get addicted to pornography. Probably not. Or to have an emotional affair. Not to have literal sex with that person, but to give your heart emotionally to someone other than your spouse. I'm guessing there's no one here that would raise their hands to that. Nobody plans to go out and do something that will potentially destroy or certainly significantly damage their marriage. And yet many, sadly, many people make those choices. And so I want to talk to you about Pura Vita, the pure life. 
from the perspective of a biblical believer. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. There's this one very poignant verse about this topic. I want to begin by reading this verse in the book of Hebrews. And it's way towards the right in your Bible, past Thessalonians and Timothy. Um, and you'll, you'll come up on Hebrews there in that area. Uh, if you go to James or Revelation, you've gone a little far. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. And the writer to the Hebrews writes this about marriage. He says this. He goes, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Honor the spiritual covenant that we made before holy God and to our marriage partner. And part of that is keeping the marriage bed pure, the pure life, pura vita. And if I remember correctly, where it's talking about sexual immorality there, the Greek word is pornea, if I remember correctly. I think I do. Pornea in the Greek means any activity sexually outside of heterosexual monogamous covenant relationship, which again is just a fancy way of saying marriage. Any sexual activity outside of marital sex between one man and one woman. There's no ambiguity. And so we're going to recognize right from the beginning that purity matters to God. And it matters in our marriage, the writer to the Hebrews says. And see, God, we work from the premise that he created us. That he understands us and what we need better than we even understand ourselves. And so he understands that when we step outside of that verse, we begin to damage ourselves and others significantly. And he always wants what's best for us. He always wants us to be in a place that brings honor to him and makes a difference for eternity, but then as a byproduct is just so good in our life. And so he knows I say this to them because I love them, not to clamp them or crimp them in any way. So we're going to be talking about uh, more than just adultery t- this morning, but, but we're going to start, start there. It's very interesting to me that some of the surveys I've seen um, <clears throat> here in North America, and I think it would be even more over in, in Asia and so forth, but... The surveys I've seen is that in North America, about 90% of the population believe that adultery is always wrong, give or take the different studies. But then you look at other studies, and they would seem to indicate that adultery seems to be on the rise, that it's quite prevalent. Even though 90% think it's always wrong, it's quite prevalent, sadly. Why is it increasing? Well, there'd be any number of reasons. Let me just pick three of them to comment on. I think, first of all, it's easier to get into trouble in this area now than it was 10 or 20 years ago. It's not that it didn't go on then. It wasn't that it wasn't available then. It certainly was, and sadly, people did it. But I think it's even easier now. Social media, which is a very positive thing in many ways. I use it myself, very positive thing. But it can be used in ways that are not good. And how many people do I come across where I read about that have gotten into affairs by meeting an old flame on social media or someone uh, new that they've never met before? 
And it's just, with social media, it's just absolutely much easier to connect with people you would never normally connect with. There are many, there's websites, if you, if you go on the web, there's websites that are devoted exclusively to helping people cheat. Let us facilitate this for you. Let us make it easy. Let us get you together with someone so that you can cheat on your spouse on the love of your life. Or there's people on their smartphones scrolling through Tinder looking for someone to hook up with. The smartphone, which has so many positives, the smartphone and tablets and things like that have opened a world in the last 10 or so years that have made this stuff much more accessible. When I was a kid, if you wanted to look at porn, it was a big deal. You had to know some guy's, you know, some guy whose dad had porn stashed somewhere in some back room. That tells you a lot about it right there, doesn't it? Hidden somewhere. And, 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 you know, you'd had to work at it to find it. It could be found, but you had to work at it. And now a 13-year-old with a smartphone can quite easily access stuff that no one should ever be involved in and no one should ever see. So it's just more accessible. Another reason is people are, are getting married later in life. The statistics all show us this. And of course, there's nothing wrong with getting married later in life. But then the culture begins to hone in on people. And it suggests to them things that are diametrically opposed to God's standard. Because again, he wants what's best for us. The culture pushes us and says, okay, you can delay marriage until, you know, your late 20s or early 30s or something like that, but absolutely, like, you'd be crazy not to experiment with sex. You need to be experienced in, in sex with a partner or multiple partners before you head into your marriage relationship. In fact, the culture goes to lengths, I would suggest, to shame people that don't do that. Let me just say to you as clearly as I can, that is a lie from the pit. This is a lie that the evil one has perpetrated extremely effectively. Oh, you've got to be experienced in this stuff or you're missing out. And he knows the damage that comes when we believe and engage in that lie. It's so mixed up. And so we hear things like, I love you, you're the only one for me, let's have sex together, until someone better comes along. And they pretend to be married when they're not. And what happens is, is it creates a false impression of the depth of that relationship. It makes it seem like this relationship is more significant than it literally is. And sex is created that way by God. It's a bonding thing. It says in Genesis 2 that two shall become one. And it's a good gift from God when it's used in the way he detailed it to be used. When you live with someone, and again, this is another incredible lie. You have to live with someone because you've got to find out and test to see if this is going to work. When you live with someone, you're looking at them and saying very directly to them, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. You might stab me in the back. Or you're saying, I don't trust myself. And I want to be able to hit the eject button 
as painlessly as possible. And anyone that's been married for any length of time knows that at the core of a healthy marriage is trust. Trust is earned. You don't just trust someone or something. It's earned over time. And when you begin the relate, when the relationship launches by saying, I don't trust you, I want to be able to bail on you if someone better comes along, and I want it to be as relatively painless as possible, this creates a problem that's very, very difficult to deal with. This is why God says, why would you do that? You're settling for second best. And God would never, ever give us that. So God says here in verse 4, he says, listen, marriage isn't perfect. Anybody that's been married knows it isn't perfect. But it's the best environment that has the greatest chance of a healthy relationship. It's that, that Petri dish that, that can mix up. That it's, just cre- it's got the best place to create a great, long-term, lifelong, healthy relationship. You might want to write this down. What he's saying, the writer to the Hebrews is saying this, you don't build a life of purity on a foundation of sin. You don't build a life of purity on a foundation of sin. And so if you would like to get married one day or you're already married and you really long for a healthy marriage, let me just invite you that the best way to prepare for marriage or to to cultivate a healthy marriage if you're in one already is to live a pure life today, the pura vita. A healthy life today. Pure life today. So some of you are sitting here right now And some of you are thinking, but Scott, I've totally blown it. I blew it. Or I blew it once. And the evil one has been whispering more lies to you. You're hopeless. Oh, you you wanted to follow Jesus, but you know what, what his word says. You've blown it. You're done. He could never use you. He, you know, he's, he's so upset with you that it's just over. This, again, is a lie from the pit. This is a lie from the evil one to cripple you spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And, of course, there's those kind of ramifications when we do these things. If we try to deal with it in our own strength. The truth of God's word is that Jesus is the source of grace. This is what we were singing about. If you notice the words in the songs we were singing about, he's the source of grace. This is what, you know, we're, we're in the Lenten season. We're heading towards the Passion Week next week when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. They're all telling him, don't go, don't go. He knows what's coming, but he goes anyways. He goes to the cross with your name in mind. He's God. He knew your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And he went to the cross and he rose from the dead. The scripture tells us to, to conquer sin and death. He is the source of grace. He's defeated the evil one. The, don't believe the lies of the evil one. We're told in scripture that if, so in other words, we have a part here, if we confess our sins, 
He, meaning Jesus, if we confess our sins, he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's more access, there's more temptation, it's more readily available. People are getting married later. Thirdly, I would suggest that there's a growing sense of entitlement in our culture. And I'm not just, I'm talking about in every age group here. I see more and more of it. And and sadly, I think I sense more of it in me. And it's something, help me God to fight against it. Where I'll hear people saying things like this, this marriage isn't giving me everything I know I deserve. She's, she's disappointed me. He's changed. He's not the same guy I married. They're not meeting the needs that I think I have in the way that I expect. I deserve to feel good. I hear these kinds of things. And then comes the big jump rationalization. Therefore, I am justified in looking, because of them, therefore, I am justified in looking somewhere else. I think there's a growing sense of entitlement in our world. What does God say? He says in verse 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Let's turn back to Ephesians, which is just back a few pages to your left, past Timothy and Thessalonians. You'll come to four of those shorter books there, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. And, and, and Peter, sorry, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> so he's writing to biblical believers. He's writing to people that have crossed the line of faith. And he says to the church at Ephesus in verse 3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. So let's just play a little game here for a second. Um, Is there a hint of immorality in you if you commit adultery with someone from work? Well, absolutely, yes. Yes. What about if you're surfing pornography on your phone? Is there a hint of immorality or impurity? Yes. What about, you know, as a male or a female, if you're, you're deliberately dressing in a provocative way, look at me, look at my body, I hope you get sexually aroused by it. Absolutely Yes. What about if you're on a business trip, you're not there with your spouse, and you're dirty dancing with a stranger? Absolutely yes. What about, and I know this from a couple years ago, but I think if I remember correctly, I didn't really pay too much attention, but I think they did another series of these movies off of this movie. But what what if you're reading Fifty Shades of Grey? Is there a hint of immorality or impurity? Absolutely yes. There's nothing gray about that. It's absolutely black and white. Not even any specks of gray on it. And we could make a big list. I'm not about making a big list. If you've got concerns about that, say, God, would you speak to my heart about what it means not to even have a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity? And he'll show you. If you ask him, he'll show you. Why does God say this? Because he says, 
In just that little list I gave you there, of just the obvious ones, there is just no upside to any of these activities. Every one of them will do nothing but hurt you in the long run, and they muddy the water of your life. And God loves you too much to let you be self-destructive. And then there's the people that will say, well, this, my, and you see this on TV a lot, well, this affair just happened. That's another lie from the pit. It never just happens, ever. If they were willing, and you looked at their life carefully and, and prayed uh, discernment prayers, you'll see that there is a whole series of back decisions, small compromises that led them to the place of them committing adultery. Or whatever the, you know, sort of this habitual sin pattern, whatever it is, not just adultery, there's going to be a whole series, at, and, and at first, oh, I know I shouldn't do this, but well, it's not a big deal, just a little one. And then it's a little bigger, and a little bigger, and a little bigger, and a little more, and a little more often. And eventually, the affair just happens. Absolutely not. It never just happens. Let's just read a little bit about that. If you have your Bible again, turn back to the book of Proverbs. We read Proverbs 5, verse 18 last week. Proverbs is just to the right of the book of Psalms. And I'm going to read about 12 or 13 verses in here. So Solomon is writing to his sons, and he's warning them about this stuff. Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, uh, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight. See, he's botched it a number of times in his life. So he's saying, listen, listen to my words of experience. Now listen in these next verses to the things, if you don't follow this advice, that you begin to forfeit. Listen well to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion. And your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Initially, it will be so inviting. It will be so inviting. And you'll want to go there. And it will be, it, it, it will just be, this is something I should do. How can I not do this? And this is the message that we hear so often from our culture. But he says, but in the end... Yeah, it might start out looking pretty good. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps, her incremental steps, lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she, does, she knows it not. Now listen, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep a path far from her. You know, he's saying, listen, there's various ways you can walk home. And this is where the small decisions begin. You could go this way, but you know she or whatever the temptation is, it's down that path. There's three or four other ways you could go home. But you go, oh, you know, I haven't been down that path for a while. But running in the subroutine in the back of your brain, you know what's down the road. And you make that small choice to go down that path rather than this path or this path or that one over there. And Solomon says, don't go down that path. Keep a path 
far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. You're going down the path, and then you make the next decision to just get a little bit closer to the door of her house. Lest your best strength, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. Do you know how much it costs to get divorced? It's extremely expensive. He's warning us. Then let's go over to verse 21. Sometimes people will give me the sense, or maybe I've even told myself this lie a few times, oh, no one can see. I can, you know, I can hide the history on my computer. I'll do this when I'm down on business in Dallas or something like this. No one will ever know. And we lie to ourselves and we think no one ever sees. Listen to what the Word of God says. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord. Not only does he see everything he does, he knows every thought in our head. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. He's there with you when you're making that choice which path to go down. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee, run from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Verse 20 says, you're, you're not your own. We have this huge independent streak. When you're a biblical believer, we're taught you're actually not your own. You were bought at a price. And the price was the blood of Christ. Honor God with your body. Flee. Let's turn over to Matthew. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this idea. Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. And he's just making a generalized comment on habitual sin here. But let's apply it to this situation. Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. He says this. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet or be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. I don't believe he's literal here. But what he is saying is he's saying, take radical steps to move away from this stuff. If this is getting a grip in your life... Take radical steps to move away. Cut, if you have to, cut off all contact from that person you're tempted to cheat with. If you have to, because of where it ends up. Remember we read in Proverbs 5 where it ends up. If you have to, quit that job to get away from them. If you have to, move houses. If you have to, move cities. Because it will destroy your life. Radical steps. If there's a porn problem in your life, maybe you shouldn't have a TV in your house. Maybe you should have no internet access. Maybe you should have your computers monitored so that every click you make, people that you trust that will ask you the tough questions can see if you've been stepping outside of the bounds that you want to step, be, be part of. Share your password 
with people you trust. Share your past with your spouse so that they can look at your phone anytime. Debbie knows my password. She can look at my phone anytime she wants. Radical steps. Radical steps. There is incredible wisdom when we make decisions to safeguard ourselves and the person we love and the, all the other collateral damage that comes whenever we do these things. All kinds of people get hurt. And some of you are sitting there going, you're crazy, Dixon. You want me to get rid of my smartphone? He says, he goes, if your hand is causing you to sin, chop it off. Radical stuff. So he doesn't only talk about outward transformation, he talks about inward purity as well. We read about this in Psalm 119. Let me read those verses to you quickly. We were read, they were read earlier. Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible. Verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I will seek you with all my heart. Do not lead me astray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So it's not just about outward compliance. It's about allowing the very power of God and his word, uh, that supernatural-based grace, to transform our heart. Now, there's three typical responses that we pursue in this kind of situation, in my experience anyways. And number one is we become defensive. We have an excuse Excuse me, sorry. Woke that person up in the back row, yeah. <laughs> Guys are just that way. I was just born like this. If only she hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have to do that. It's none of your business. How dare you look at my computer and see the stuff I've been looking at? When we sin and we are defensive... We are being rebellious against God. There's not one person in this room that's above correction. And the scripture is very clear. He loves to work with and bless humble people. It says in the scripture that he opposes the proud. The ones who rationalize their sin. A second one, and, and maybe this isn't the best word for it, but it's sort of a, an empty remorse. And I'm not sure if it's the right word, but you know, it's just this feeling, I'm bad, I'm horrible, I'm hopeless, I'm sorry I got caught, there's really nothing I can do about this. It's just another form of deflection. And the scripture is just very clear where it says, no excuses, no deflections, I admit I made a sinful choice. Psalm 51 says, what God loves to see is a broken and contrite heart. I'm distressed over what I've done. I'm broken up over it. I own my stuff. I recognize at the same time I'm powerless to deal with this. I'm powerless to compensate for it. But God, would you forgive me for this that I did? And based on what Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection, would you heal me? Would you transform me? Would you help me? Would you empower me to go in the opposite direction? Would you remove the shame and the guilt? Would you cleanse me?
And here's the thing. He will. He absolutely will. And it's supernatural in its orientation. It's nothing you can do for yourself. And the thing that's really cool is he never brings it up again. Once he deals with something, it's not that he forgets it. He just chooses to never bring it up again. Pura vida, the pure life.